Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The issue of cancel culture isn't going away. We've had a number of different conversations on this show about it. People who are sympathetic, if not to cancel culture, to some of the ideas behind it, and people like uh, Brett Stevens, uh, who are quite critical of it. This week, um, there was a poll done of a quote-unquote Americans who suggest they're not too sympathetic about it. Um, And it continues to be an issue that divides uh, intellectuals. I guess the issue of free speech is, uh, in in a way, whether or not it is free speech, it's certainly driving free speech in America. One of um, The Atlantic's best journalists, uh, Connor uh, Friedersdorf, has written a couple of really interesting pieces about it. I think it'd be fair to say, Connor, that you're a critic of cancel culture, are you? Or um, are you wary of it? Or are you unwilling to take any positions one way or the other on it? Uh, The way I'd put it is I'm a critic of the liberalism, I would say. And I don't love the term cancel culture, but I'm broadly sympathetic to some of the people who are complaining about it. And other critiques I disagree with. Um, But I, I often think that uh, the term confuses things. And so I try to use things like liberalism. I'm for free inquiry. What I'm really concerned about is truth-seeking institutions, by which I especially mean uh, the press and academia to do the business of truth-seeking and not have taboos that are preventing that from going on. So, Connor, you sound very moderate, but actually when I read your pieces, um, they're extremely... Uh, incisive. That doesn't mean you can't be moderate and incisive. But uh, the, the last couple of pieces that you wrote for the Atlantic, one called "The Perils of With Us or Against Us," and one about the chilling effect uh, of an attack on a scholar, a piece about uh, Stephen Pinker, suggests that there is um, a new atmosphere of intolerance within the universities in particular, within schools and within culture broadly. Um, Does it really worry you? Do you think that we are in an age of of intolerance? You make the historical comparison with the period after 9-11 and suggest that in the summer of 2020, our intolerance towards any kind of criticism of Black Lives Matter is similar in some ways to the atmosphere after 9-11 and our attitude towards the Muslim world? Yeah, you know, I think that intolerance uh, for dissent waxes and wanes. I I would never claim that right now we're at uh, an all-time low point for these kinds of things. You can look back in history, especially around times of war, and you can see, uh, you know, government transgressions against a speech. You can see the whole era of McCarthyism and various red scares throughout history. So I would say that these things wax and wane and that we are in a period of waxing now and that there are, uh, and and polls confirm this, where you ask people, uh, are you more afraid to 
speak honestly about your views than you were a few years ago. And um, people across the ideological spectrum say yes. You know, the Cato Institute, I think just yesterday or the day before, released a poll showing that the only group that feels comfortable um, speaking out honestly about their views are strong liberals now. Uh, and, you know, even weak liberals and centrists and especially conservatives uh, feel that they're on the edge of uh, cancellation all the time. So I, I do think it's pretty solidly established that we're at a point of waxing right now. You know, I listen to people like Brett Stevens and perhaps yourself, and I'm wondering, is a lot of this just froth? Is a lot of this just a few extreme stories from obscure universities which have been taken by the media and translated into some sort of universal significance? How broad, in your view at least, is this uh, impact of cancel culture on free speech in America today? Uh, well, for one thing, I would say that you will find people whose speech is chilled at every university of any size in the United States. I, you know, wow. before pandemic times, I would travel around occasionally and attend a lecture or doing a speaking engagement on campus. And dating back to 2015, I'd been writing about higher education in the Atlantic. And almost without exception, when I would show up on a campus, uh, a professor who I wouldn't have thought would be afraid of speaking their views would sidle up to me and say, you know, I'm basically a pretty solid liberal and I always have been, but man, am I afraid to say this or that? Um, an another indication, just to give you a particular example, uh, I'm doing research right now on a faculty letter that went out at Princeton and got um, something like certainly hundreds of signatories. It might've been above 300 signatories to this letter. It has a whole laundry list of demands, most related to, uh, I guess, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think is, is the way that they put it. And one of these demands is to have a sort of tribunal at Princeton, a, facu a standing faculty committee that will decide which speech and which research and which classroom instruction is racist and must be punished. Um, and if you read just the language of the letter, it is utterly clear that this would transgress against the very core of academic freedom. Um, and you know, hundreds of people signed on to this. And so I followed up and began to email uh, people who did sign on to it and raised the sorts of objections that you would expect. Won't this transgress against academic freedom? Who gets to define racism? How broadly is it defined? Um, you know, and I also said, I've read a bunch of Princeton scholars on the subject of racism. They have widely different views, all of which seem like they should be in bounds. And so which views do you think should be out of bounds? And already I've heard from people who signed the letter who absolutely agree with me that implementing that demand would be a terrible thing. Uh, I got someone who is embarrassed that they signed the letter uh, for that reason. I've got a lot of people speaking off the record critical about the letter that they signed who are afraid to speak on the record <laughs> being critical. And so uh, I, I really do think that um, there's one argument about, you know, are people too afraid? And maybe we could have a separate discussion about that. Um, but people really are concerned uh, about saying things that fall outside the category of bigotry, of racial slurs, of Holocaust denial, these longstanding taboos that most people agree ought to be taboos, right? 
when I say people are afraid to say things, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about things that uh, you could easily have published an op-ed in the New York Times about them five years ago. Uh, and now lots of those things are verboten and people will speak to you off the record about them. If you're me, they'll speak anonymously, um, but they won't go on the record. You wrote uh, quite a chilling piece, I thought, about the, the Steven Pinker case. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm sure that speaks in a broad sense of what you're warning about. Yeah. For people who, who don't know the, the Pinker case, what happened? Yeah, so so this, this case was noteworthy to me, not because Steven Pinker is in any danger of losing his voice. You know, he's a famous scholar. He's a best-selling author. There's going to be lots of people who are willing to um, host him in preeminent publications. And so uh, let's be very clear at the outset that the concern isn't what Steven Pinker will or won't be able to say, but rather that these, you know, again, hundreds of scholars in the linguistics community um, published this letter and ostensibly it was seeking to remove Pinker from the uh, Linguistic Society of America list of like approved scholars. So a pretty small and inconsequential thing again doesn't really matter if he's on this list or not uh, to most people in the world. Um, but in putting this forth, what they did was basically set out, here are things that we think ought to uh, warrant professional sanction. Here are the kinds of things that you might get attacked for, uh, that your professional advancement in this field of linguistics might be uh, impeded if you say these sorts of things. And the sorts of things that they were attacking um, almost no one could uh, prevent themselves from running afoul of these things. So, you know, one of the things that they heap scorn on Pinker for doing is one time on Twitter, he put up a link to a David Brooks column. And the signatories to the letter say that David Brooks, this centrist, also best-selling author who writes at the New York Times, who has taught classes at Ivy League universities, certainly someone who is, um, you know, a voice that many people who don't share his politics, many people who are on the left of the spectrum in the United States value his voice. Um, this letter phrased things as if to quote David Brooks was verboten because David Brooks, I, I don't even remember what transgression they were upset with David Brooks for, but it was a guilt by association for tweeting a column to David Brooks. And, you know, if we can't tweet out a, um, if we can't tweet out a, positive link to someone in the op-ed page of the paper of record, if that's going to be part of what's cited to uh, have a censured in our field, that's pretty problematic. And there's a, you know, we, we can go into as much detail as you want, but the whole case against Pinker was a passage from his book, Better Angels, that is broadly about the decline of violence all over the world and in all different societies and arguing that humanity is basically advanced along this metric over time. Um, and then it cites six tweets that Pinker has written over the years that the signatories of this letter object to. And so this isn't a frontal attack on some major journal article that he wrote. It isn't, you know, an analysis of lectures that Pinker has given that is out of step or shows professional incompetence. In fact, the letter, um, the signatories say particularly that they have no complaint about uh, Pinker's scholarship or his standing as a scholar of linguistics. Um, it's these other separate things that they're upset about. And uh, so you can't read a letter like that 
directed at one of the leading lights in your field, or at least one of the most famous people in your field, without thinking, huh, have I done stuff like this? Should I avoid doing stuff like this if I'm still waiting to find out if I get tenure? And uh, you know, all of that is why the case seemed noteworthy to me. I think it should be a, an official crime to read a David Brooks column <laughs> in the New York Times. But it may be. It may be. Before I, I probably shouldn't say that publicly. I'll go to jail for it. Uh, in all seriousness, Connor, you, you say that at the moment some of this is humorous, some of it is absurd, but it could result in catastrophe. It's all very well pointing to people who sign these letters by accident. But presumably there are some people behind this cancel culture, people trying to shut up people like um like steven pinker who who know exactly what they're doing who are they it's hard to say because um no one presents themselves as writing in bad faith as acting in bad faith and uh you know i try very hard in my work to um at least give people the presumption that they're acting in good faith unless i can presume otherwise or unless i can prove otherwise uh it's very difficult to prove otherwise um, but one point I make in the Pinker letter is that it ultimately doesn't matter if these people, whether they write these petitions, whether they sign them, uh, it doesn't matter whether they're acting in good faith or not. The chilling effect uh, has the same effect either way. And, um, you know, there is this kind of underlying backdrop, this underlying idea to these kinds of things, uh, an impulse to kind of purify um, public discourse as if, oh, I'm sorry. That is Stephen Pinker. <laughs> Let me uh, try and shut this up. Sorry about that. And now you're in Carol's trouble, Connor. You're never going to shut okay. anybody up. So um, I think that there's this underlying impulse uh, to purify public discourse of wrong think, an idea that there are dangerous sentiments out there or microaggressive sentiments, I guess, that some people would say that cause harm. Um, my instinct has always been that, uh, you know, sure, ideas can be dangerous. Um, however, there are opinions that people hold. And when you get into opinions that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of the country hold, the idea that you can suppress any damage that they might do by stopping them from being uttered in elite institutions is ridiculous. Um, in, in fact, what, what that standard will do in the long term is just enervate these institutions and make it so that the public conversations that any society is going to have take place on Joe Rogan's podcast instead of in the op-ed section of the New York Times. Um, it's uh, it's amazing to me how many opinions there are that have the force of law in the United States or that have multiple senators who hold them that some people think shouldn't be discussed in universities and the press. Uh, this is not, of course, the Joe Rogan show. I wish it was uh, in terms certainly of his audience and influence. <laughs> yeah. um, but isn't the fact that we're having this conversation on Lit Hub, which is pretty progressive, and that you work for the Atlantic and that you're publishing this stuff. Uh, isn't this proof that cancel culture may exist in a few universities, even ones like Princeton that aren't obscure, but in reality, this is a summer story when, uh, when we're not talking about the coronavirus, we're talking about cancel culture. 
Have you had any pushback at the Atlantic? Are you getting threatening letters? Are there any, um, are there any uh, movements out there trying to get you fired from the Atlantic for writing this stuff? Oh, I think any journalist working at a mainstream publication, and this is people on the left and the right and the center, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's become much more common in recent years to find yourself tweeting out an article or a comment on something in the news and to have someone respond by tagging you and your boss and your editor and the publication and trying to get you fired. That's a very common thing for everyone. Now, I will say I feel supported at The Atlantic. I, you know, I've been there for 10 years. Uh, I like everyone there personally. I've spent a lot of time hanging out with them. Uh, they know to me to be writing in good faith. I've had success there over the years with different articles. I had success with The Atlantic's audience. Uh, I think I'm in an unusually secure position, having a relatively established voice and having been at a publication with people I know for a long time. And, uh, you know, people responded to that letter about this issue by pointing to all of the people on the letter who had giant platforms or lots of money. You know, J.K. Rowling was on it. Salman Rusty was on it. People who are not going to be canceled. Uh, and I think that a lot of people signed that letter, and I'm sympathetic to that letter in large part because they can speak out about these things in a way that people at the bottom of the profession and the press cannot, uh, people without tenure in universities cannot. Um, and, and so I feel that it's, you know, I think it's a responsibility at all times for people to stand up in defense of free speech. Uh, and free inquiry. I think those things are always under attack and we only have them now because it, literally every year and every decade there have been organizations and people who have stood up for them and preserved them against whatever the prevailing ethos against them was at the time. Um, you know, the distinction that you drew, we're having this discussion uh, in a platform that's generally progressive. You know, I think you would never apply that standard to bygone times and say something like, well, was McCarthyism really a problem? I mean, lots of left-leaning people still had jobs in the academy. It's not like they rooted out everyone who was at all sympathetic to Marxism. It wasn't actually that many people who were fired. If you look at the number of people on the Hollywood blacklist, it wasn't like it was that many people as a percentage of the whole working in entertainment or writing. Um, you know, I, in, in the same way, we should recognize then as now as then, um, the way that chilling effects work is a few high profile examples ripple through cultures and institutions and people who are in the middle of a pandemic and have a job and income coming in are going to stop far short of the point where they think they might get fired. They're going to self-censor far short of the actual standard or they're going to, they're going to be attuned to what might get them fired 1% of the time, not, 99% of the time, and rationally so. And I think most people understand this in their own jobs. If they were thinking about something that might help the company or uh, that they feel strongly about expressing, uh, but there'd be a 10% chance that they got not only fired, but publicly shamed in a way that would make it difficult for them to get another job. You know, what's the threshold at which you don't say that thing? A 5% chance of being fired, maybe? Finally, um, Connor, what are we going to do about this? Uh, very briefly, I know this, it's a complicated, challenging problem, but uh, in, in brief terms, how, how, how do we maintain free speech while us at the same time not go back to the, the old world of 
uh, not only inequality, but also um, speech that was often offensive. Yeah. Well, I think that one thing that we can do is have a little bit of analytic clarity around one divide. And that is a divide uh, that can be summed up with one question. Um, is there a truth proposition that we are adjudicating here, right? And so if someone uses a racial slur, uh, we can say, no, that's beyond the pale. Uh, we're not going to stand for that. And by doing so, we, we're not losing the ability to adjudicate any truth proposition, right? On the other hand, if we're arguing about um, what are we going to do about policing in America, and some people think the most lives are going to be saved if we defund the police, and other people think that the most lives are going to be saved if we have even more police officers to stop murders. Uh, there's a truth proposition at stake there. There's a policy at stake there. We need to have very uh, broad ability to discuss that question. And you can see how there are sensitivities in both. Uh, there are minefields in both. And yet, in only one of those two scenarios, is there an important truth proposition? In only one of those scenarios, does a taboo prevent us from truth seeking? And so we need to defend the truth seeking propositions as uh, much as we can. And we also need to draw distinction with things like racial slurs and say, no, that's not okay. And we're going to preserve the longstanding taboos against those things and see that there's no contradiction there. Perhaps the best way to preserve what you call truth telling is by reading a good book. Any suggestions? You're in LA, I'm in San Francisco, we're stuck inside during this endless crisis. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw out two. I've been really enjoying the Zadie Smith novel on beauty lately. Um, I, I just finished it. I'm doing a kind of informal book club with a friend. And it, uh, you know, I've been reporting on academia and it's set in an academic setting. And it's, uh, the characters are very humanely drawn. They have some ideologically diverse characters and characters with different identity traits, and they're all presented as humans and individuals, uh, and yet they're not stripped of their ideological content nor of the respective cultures that they come from. And so I think that it's a good book to read at this time. Uh, another book I've enjoyed, you know, one of the, that letter that we were talking about, one of the people who put it together, Thomas Chatterton Williams, wrote a book called A Portrait of Black and White. And if people are reading um, books like Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist and Robin D'Angelo's uh, White Fragility. Thomas has a different perspective on race. It's very thoughtful. Uh, and so if people are dealing with that uh, issue right now and trying to think about it through reading, A Portrait in Black and White is a, a great addition to have a kind of uh, you know, diverse view of what might be the best way forward to work toward anti-racism. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.